You're listening to The Tool Belt, a manufacturing podcast focusing on logistics, safety, operations, and breaking industry news. Please enjoy this interview from July 20th, 2023. Hello, good afternoon, or good uh, morning to those of you on the West Coast. Uh, my name is Robert Schoenberger, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Industry Week. And welcome to Production Pulse, our bi-weekly show where we talk to newsmakers about interesting things going on in the manufacturing world. Uh, my guest today is Katie Anderson, who recently won the Shingo Prize for her book, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn, uh, which is based on her conversations with uh, Isao Yoshino, who is one of the really founding fathers of Toyota's modern practices, especially the people side of them, and how the Toyota way really became the, the manufacturing powerhouse that's become over the years. So welcome, Katie. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Robert. So uh, looking forward to having the conversation. It's great to be here. Great, great. So uh, I, I read the book uh, over the weekend and a little bit last week and enjoyed it greatly. Uh, one of the things I found really interesting were some of the individual stories, and uh, in, it almost is like a history of how Toyota's thinking developed instead of the kind of the monolith we see it as today, this great program that everyone wants to follow. Uh, it wasn't always that way, and it, you, you show through some stages how it became what it is. Um, and one of my favorite stories came from uh, the, the first Toyota operations in the United States, man manufacturing operations, which came in the early 80s in Fremont, California, uh, the new United Motor Manufacturing Incorporated, or NUMI, uh, famous plant for any of those, those of us who uh, follow the auto industry, uh, General Motors and Toyota partnered on uh, this operation, restarting a shuttered GM plant. Uh, that will be run by a Toyota in partnership with GM and the United Auto Workers. Yeah. Uh, and, and you shared the story that uh, Toyota would bring over 30 people at a time from California to Japan to learn how to make vehicles uh, at its Japanese plants. And one of the problems they ran into right away was it was a cultural difference. Could, could you go ahead and share that story about the, the, the bath towels? Yeah, well, sure. So for a little context, too, so Asao Yoshino, at that time had, was uh, the, responsible for developing that whole training program. So when the American frontline team leaders and managers were coming to Japan to really learn actually the management practices to be able to make cars in the Toyota way, in the Toyota production system, it was his responsibility to figure out what that training program would look like and to lead it over multiple years. And so th there were some, you know, there were some cultural differences and they actually had the wisdom to know that they did not know everything or a lot about American culture. Um, we, can talk, we can talk about that in a moment too. So they hired an American who's quite famous now um, to help them with that, uh, with that process. But when the, the towel story made me laugh. So there are a lot of stories in this book that can span multiple years and then there are little vignettes. So this is one of the vignettes where, uh, so typically in like, this has changed now a bit, but in, in Japanese traditional uh, hotels and guest houses, you have a very small, uh, very thin towel. It's I would consider it almost like a sweat towel that you get at the gym to equate it like that. And that's what you'd, you'd get in your hotel room. And the Americans were used to, of course, you know, more American style plush, larger towels that might be able to dry your entire body or cover your entire body. And they were, um, 
they were they were upset or complaining that they wanted two bath towels instead of just one. Um, and you know, ideally they wanted something bigger, but knowing that that's all that was there. And the Japanese leaders were like, no, you get one towel. That's the standard because you know there's a lot of standard practices in Japan. That's the rule, one towel. And uh, John Shook, who many of you may know uh, now as the president of the Lean Global Network, and he was the first non-Japanese employee of Toyota Motor Corporation. He was working for Mr. Yoshino, uh, and uh, he, he helped the group understand that conceding and being able to give to two towels was very important to the Americans and that, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. And it helped understand that there are cultural differences in expectations, both around rules and around um, your, the comforts of home and what that and what that means. And it, it gave Mr. Yoshino and the other Japanese managers an opportunity to reflect and realize that the cultural differences, like uh, you know, Mr. Yoshino would say, you know, if you can concede, not concede first, but you're there, your guests. And so it's better to to make the, uh, the efforts to make them feel comfortable. And in doing that and extending those small things, that will make them feel more willing and open to be learning the things that are new for them as well. Um, and so it was a really interesting small story about those. How, how do you work with people across cultures and how do you not make assumptions about why the reasons why people are asking for something um, and to really understand what's driving that um, and to, that it's actually, choose your places where you really want to hurt, hold firm on the rules and where is it okay to make some, uh, make some adjustment. Just thinking back to that period of time in the, the early mid eighties, the, the, the idea that the American idea of what a Japanese business was like and our, our view of the Japanese culture was, was the sense of this very rigid culture where mm. things were a certain way. And you think of movies of the time like gung ho and this fear that the Japanese would come in and tell us how to do things rather than this partnership. And, and Numi really did turn into a very interesting partnership where, where Toyota learned a lot about American practices and American companies learned a lot about the Toyota way of doing things. I just wonder how much of that could have been derailed that if very early in this process, they had confirmed some of these stereotypes and said, no, you get one towel and what would the worker experience have been had they not been willing to bend just a little bit and show that they were learning and teaching at the same time? Yeah, you know, I, it was an opportunity for them to reflect on their own, uh, how, their own style as well and, and realize that there were opportunities to, to be flexible. But really, I mean, the Numi story is such a prime example of how those, well, everyone had these strong relationships that in a three-week period they were built. And Mr. Yoshino's goal for each cohort was that they left with a smile, even though it was hard work, and that they had, they felt like there was something that they could do differently when they went back home. So that, to him, that was a sign of success. And cohort after cohort, that's what was happening. But I think what really uh, was the transformative effort there is that, that they were connected on that human dimension, right? And so even though they couldn't speak the same language, but they uh, and they, they were sometimes some cultural differences, they were working side by side and really showing how managers stepped in when people needed help. And to uh, they weren't there yelling at people. They were, you know, if there was a mistake, they showed them how to do the, mis you know, how to correct the mistake and do it differently that, that next time. Whereas at GM, where they had come from, I mean, it was people were intentionally, you know, doing terrible things to cars and not adding in, you know, bolts or whatever, because this this hostility that had developed between the workers and the management. And so they saw something that was totally different. And that is what enabled 
knew me to go, it, you change from that, the GM original plant to the, the worst performing to the highest performing in just about a year. It was really incredible. Now that plant, it uh, operated continuously from the 80s until 2010. Uh, GM uh, divested its portion during its bankruptcy in 2009 and Toyota eventually stopped production there. Uh, but it is now Tesla's uh, Model uh, Model 3, Model X plant. Uh, they're doing a couple different vehicles there. So it is still producing cars today, though, under a very, very different ownership and different models. So it's a fascinating operation. Totally. And it's, it's actually just across the bay from where I am located. And when Mr. Yoshino <laughs> lived here in California, it was just maybe a 25 minute drive from my house. So we have some shared, shared um, backgrounds as well, even though we come from different countries and different generations. So that brings me to the, the next story I wanted to talk to you about. There was a chapter in the book about uh, Mr. Yoshino's uh, uh, first assignment living in America. We was got this, uh, assigned to the new San Francisco office. And it was a role that he had imagined himself being in this great leadership position. And instead, he was put into a role where he was effectively supporting all of the uh, Japanese engineers and executives coming over uh, to work in the United States. So instead of, you know, putting in strategic initiatives and things like this. He was finding ways to get kids into school or making sure there were dinner reservations made and something like this. Uh, and, and you described how he was very uh, disillusioned by that initially, but was able to make a turn in his career. And I, th I thought this was a really interesting kind of lens of thinking about the whole idea of the Peter principle, people being promoted to their level of incompetence, uh, where if you find yourself in a new role where you're not very good while well, you stop getting promoted. But this this could have been that, and instead to turn into something else, mm. something very different. Can you talk a little bit about what, what happened to him there and, and what we can all learn from that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, in all of these experiences and my understanding of them evolved over multiple years of conversation with Mr. Yoshino um, as well. And there's a picture of us in January of 2020, when right before the pandemic hit, we were about to release the book. Um, so he had a lifelong dream of moving to the United States and actually had started studying English in, um, in high school and middle school, which was unusual because at that time it would have been the 1950s and just after the war. Uh, and he had this passion of wanting to move to the United States. So this is like multiple decades of a dream finally realized. And he's you know, given this opportunity to move to San Francisco. And he had such high hopes for what his role was going to be. And as you said, it's like he describes it like he was a gopher. You know, he's getting cats out of trees and making reservations. And he was pretty down in the dumps, he described. You know, it's like really frustrating. He had a small team working for him as well. And then he, ha he, he said he had this realization over, you know, probably a few weeks time that he had this assignment and it was another two and a half years. And he could either just like go through the motions and be really unhappy and um, or he could shift his mindset and think about the positive opportunities that came from this role and to do something that he learned from the Americans who were coming to knew me, which was to make yourself the best person you can, like judge yourself against yourself, not against others. And so he set a goal for himself. He was going to be the best, you know, liaison director um, in the world. And so is he called the best gopher in the world, the best jack of all trades. And so he, he was like, I'm going to embrace this. I'm going to give the most amazing customer service to all of the executives who asked me to do what are seemingly mundane tasks. Um, and he challenged his team to be the best, you know, as well, do the best that you can have your clients and your customers be the, like wowed by your service. And that mindset shift really helped him. Like he got more fulfillment from the job and actually 
resulted in better outcomes for himself too. He was ultimately asked to stay for another year and it led to greater career opportunities at Toyota because he created relationships with all of these Toyota executives who were passing through the United States um, in San Francisco on their way to other places that then led to greater opportunities um, in his career as well. So when we can, you know, things aren't, we, we can't always shape our current, our situation, like the environment around us, but we can shape how we respond to it. And often that will help us have a better experience, but also can result in things that we never thought would be possible um, when we can get out of that sort of negative, uh, the negative feeling as well. And that sort of looking at the positive has been something that he's then tried to inspire in other people throughout his whole career in life as well. And even from that whole corporate strategic principle, feeling that you're not doing anything of value to the greater company, that changed as well. Because once he started getting more involved with the, the community, for example, he found uh, uh, the, the uh, he, he had better access to the right people. There was a, a minor moment in, in his time there when someone asked to, if he could arrange a meeting with a, a U.S. senator. And, well, yes. he hadn't thought of that before. That wasn't something he could do. But after he, he changed his mindset and really got involved with uh, everyone in the region, he did have those connections. He did have the ability. And, and that did help Toyota get in front of the right people at various times. So it wasn't just a matter of him feeling better about himself. The company benefited as well. Absolutely. And this is something that he had to make that shift for himself. But I think how powerful if we as leaders and managers can help people understand the greater purpose of their role and how that you know, there might be a description on the paper, but that there's greater opportunity as well. And so when we can all lead with that mindset of being connected to a greater purpose and opportunity, we achieve so much more. So, so final vignette here, and something that really hit close to home for me was uh, his next assignment in, in Nagoya, uh, where he came into a, a department, a human resources group that was very well run. He kind of came in and saw that they didn't really need anything to change. They had good people in place. They were doing their jobs competently. He saw that morale wasn't perfect and there were uh, some other things going on. But I think when I came here to Industry Week about two years ago, uh, you know, we had a fantastic staff. You know, we had uh, you know, Jill Jusco running things on the executive editor side, Laura Putre, who you've worked with on contributions. There was nothing that needed to change. So what, what was my role here if I'm not here to fix something? And yeah, he, he found himself in that situation and said, well, I, I can, if, the, if things are going well, what can we do for the people who are doing that job? You know, how, how can we make their lives better? And you talk a little bit about how he, he achieved that. Yeah, so he stepped into this role and it was a group that, you know, he had come from organizational development types of roles, but he didn't really know the content of the work that this group of uh, like 100 people were doing. And they had two competent managers, uh, you know, in, in the group but they had been working for a very command and control micromanager who was always telling them what to do. And he, he surprised these managers. He said, you guys know what the content of the work, I trust you. If you need help, let me know, I'm happy to step in, but like you run the show, uh, we know what our goals are and I'm here to help support you. And then he saw the opportunity. He saw, the, he saw that these, uh, these young people, they were probably mainly in their twenties. They'd never, they just sort of come straight from university or straight from high school, working a desk job, maybe traveling an hour into the city and an hour back, that he didn't see any enthusiasm or energy in their, in their being. And he saw this opportunity to help them see a greater perspective in the world and develop themselves as human beings. And he created, he, he did so many amazing things, you know, he, and 
he, you know, he started having these weekly sessions where he would write an inspirational message, message about leadership and share that with, um, with the team. Some of them would be just very mundane um, elements. And I have some of those in the book as well, but just really like, you know, almost felt like, like little Yoda sayings. Um, and then he had, he, he, because of his connections that he'd made when he was living in the United States and also coordinating a lot of travel, he decided he wanted to see about giving these people opportunities to travel. So he had some ways that he would let people go to, he would help them have a day off to go to another city in Japan. And then he went to the airlines and he asked them to donate pairs of tickets, both domestically and internationally. And I'm like, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly, but over like 20 people got to go like to Europe or to the United States and have these international experiences to broaden their perspective and also a reward for them, you know, doing, doing good work. Um, and this really transformed people's perspective on the world and their engagement in their work as well. And not, and as you mentioned, you, you, you know, I've talked about, not everyone stayed. There was one woman who realized she really wanted to go to university. She had never thought that that was possible for her. So she actually left the company and went to university, but that was so much better for her and, you know, and better for the community and better for the world to have someone who's using their full capabilities rather than just clocking in and clocking out. So, uh, you know, it was something that he felt really, uh, and he was so ha happy with, and he really transformed these people's lives to feel more connected to their own purpose and see the greater opportunity to how they can contribute to the world. It's a great message, given that uh, the people who do stay are going to be more dedicated to what they're doing, more empowered, more uh, it just have better feelings towards yep. their employer and will be better employees in the future because of that perspective yep. that they've been given. So, yeah. so awesome. people. Totally. So interestingly, I was just talking, I've seen Mr. Yoshino twice this year. I lead study trips to Japan and I was, uh, I was there in January and May and I'll be back in October. Uh, he mentioned that he recently saw one of the uh, the... I guess the one of the people who was able to go on these trips and he ended up being having a very senior role um, at Toyota and this man was talking to him about how grateful he was for that experience and it was only 12 months uh, 10 months that Mr. Yoshino was in this management role but how transformative it was for his life and his for career as well um and so it's just like that's so it's so amazing and and we all have this opportunity we don't have to get airplane tickets for our employees but we can go a little bit extra and help people grow and develop and see other possibilities besides just this narrow definition of the job that they're in, but they're, how they can contribute more broadly. Um, and I, sometimes I hear, you know, like, well, why would we develop people? They're just going to leave organizations, right? Because we have a lot in Japan, and especially back in uh, Japan in, in this time in the 80s and 90s, you really signed up generally for a lifetime employment of the company you'd chosen. And we have a lot more movement in the West and in the United States. But really, as you said, if you invest in people, some people may leave, they may go get, you know, to another organization or they may decide to go get education, but you're, you're more likely to retain them and have engaged people who are helping you achieve more and do more um, as well. So it is really like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you develop people, you're going to have better outcomes and, we're, and it's greater for the world as well. You want people to be engaged in the work that they're doing. And it's the old joke. If you think a uh, trainee is expensive, imagine what a competence looks like. So yeah. that's a, uh, th there's a definite benefit for all involved. Well, Katie, th thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for everyone out there who's listening. Uh, the book, again, 
is learning to lead, <laughs> leading to learn. Uh, and it, again, uh, Katie just won the uh, Shingo Prize for for uh, for writing for this one. Uh, it's a, a great lesson if you want to see, really, again, how that Toyota philosophy formed over many years and some really great tips in there about how to be a leader of people and really get the most out of the people working for you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Robert.